my money. Money. I get money from you. Money in the bank. Young money. Money, 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 money. It's a rich man's world. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. World-renowned financial advisor and best-selling author Barry James Dyke will arm you with the truth. This is The Economic Warrior. This is The Economic Warrior with your host, Barry James Dyke. His his uh, sidekick, Will Pearson, on the phone, president of the Mises Institute, Mr. Jeff Dice. Jeff, are you there, sir? All right, Jeff. Awesome. Well, thank you for being our guest today. And uh, I think everyone should know about Mises uh, and uh, Ludwig von Mises. But uh, could you just please tell our audience about your professional background, uh, where you worked previously, and how you became president of uh, the Mises Institute? And uh, I'll have some other questions. But could you first please tell us about that yourself? Well, I'm a longtime libertarian by persuasion. I don't really have strong political views. I'm not a Republican or Democrat and have never been much of either. Uh, but uh, growing up as a young man, reading some uh, authors like Henry Hazlitt and Friedrich Hayek that my dad had laying around, I developed a more libertarian sense of the world, especially as it re- regards economics, and uh, ultimately got to meet Dr. Ron Paul when I was an undergraduate in college and kept in touch with him and some other people around him, which sort of formed uh, my own thinking in my 20s, and uh, now, a couple decades later, I uh, came to work at the, at the Mises Institute, which is, as you mentioned, uh, dedicated to promoting the work of, of what we would consider rational or correct economics versus what passes for economics today. Yeah, now, Ludwig von Mises, uh, tell the audience you know about Ludwig von Mises and who was he and what was his kind of uh, economic thought, you know, kind of for laymen, Jeff. Well, he's an absolute giant of the 20th century, and we know this because even his worst critics now bring him up when they talk disparagingly in the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever <laughs> it might be about this sort of Koch brothers uh, neoliberal revolution where we're all uh, under the thumb of libertarian capitalists, which, of course, we know isn't true, but we'd like it to be true, other than the, maybe the Koch-funded part. Uh, so he was an absolute giant of the 20th century. He wrote probably the most sweeping treatise of, of economics ever written called Human Action, which yep. is about a 900-page book, and it's very daunting for a lot of people. But that said, uh, he developed a school which, which, or helped develop a school which stands quite opposite to what we think of as economics today. So Misesian economics, or Austrian economics, properly understood, is it's a social science. It's not math, it's not physics, it's not statistics. Uh, it, it views human beings as individuals, as human actors, rather than in aggregates or in data. It, it understands the cause and effect, causal relationships between action and choice and outcome. And uh, more than anything, is it, it's not trying to masquerade as something it's not. In other words, economics is a social science. It's the study of humans to an extent and what they do with all their irrationalities and oddities and prejudices and, and whatever else. Uh, whereas physics and math are, are sciences that study, uh, the, you know, that study non-human uh, elements on Earth. So we aren't molecules, we aren't atoms, and we, we shouldn't be studied as such. And more importantly, 
when we're trying to understand the world better through economics, which I think is the goal of any field of science, to help us understand the world better, uh, we can't come up with a theory and then go test it empirically like we can with gravity. Yeah. Uh, we, have to, we have to understand that humans uh, don't always repeat the same conduct over time. They're not lab rats. And so what really distinguishes Mises, as much as anything else from even free market economists today, is, is his method. In other words, the method of understanding individual human actors instead of trying to come up with statistics and data in the aggregate. Yeah. Now, the thing is, is the, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Mises Institute is um, uh, is really much. In, uh, and so you worked for Don, Dr. Ron Paul for a while. Am I correct? When you, did you work when you? In, I did in, in Washington, yes. Yeah. So he, he's a great guy. And I've always been a fan. And actually, he's uh, I like to reconnect with him. He actually endorsed my first book. And uh, I'll send you copies of that, Jeff. But uh uh, one of the things which which Ron Paul is, and I, I'm at too, um, and this were just my opinion, is that the one of the uh, big tenets of the Austrian uh, school is that uh, central banks are really kind of uh, creating planned societies and really kind of ruining the value of our money and uh, causing inflation and so forth. Could you kind of elaborate on that, Jeff? How, because a lot of people just don't understand this stuff. Because we imagine that we live in a free market capitalist society, but we don't stop to consider that half of every transaction is affected by the central bank. In other words, when you go out and buy a Honda Accord, you might look into and study the ratings of Honda Accord, some of the uh, various uh, attributes of a Honda Accord, uh, some of the options you can get, and and decide, well, okay, I'm willing to part with $35,000 in order to get a Honda Accord. But from Honda's side, they're getting $35,000 from you. Are they allowed to look at who's producing this money? Is it likely to be worth more or less in the future? Is it stable? Or will it continue to be a good form of money? They can't do a lot of, a lot of research into the, the strength and quality of the dollar. It's just something we accept as part of our world. But in fact, we have a group of central planners, the, the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, who sort of sit around every year and decide how much money the form of U.S. currency, real and electronic, should be produced. Uh, they help to target interest rates. In other words, they determine in part, in large part, the cost of borrowing money for people like you and me. And they also determine a lot of, of how many, of what kind of reserves banks are going to hold, which ultimately affects all of us. So if we had a group of people sitting around in Washington decided, deciding how many Aconda Accords will be produced in 2019 and how much... Uh, they should. How much people will have to pay for them? What the price of them will be? Uh, how much a, per hour a worker will be paid to produce a Honda Accord? All of these kinds of things. We would all be up in arms and say, No, no, no. Leave that to the private market. Honda will figure that out. That's capitalism, supply and demand, competition. But we don't have that when it comes to the other side of that transaction. When it comes to the currency we're using to buy and sell goods and services. So to me, the central bank is an anti-market institution. And because I've had the, the opportunity to study it somewhat, uh, I understand that it has a, a lot of distorting effects throughout the economy. And in my strong opinion, it makes us all poorer and worse off, and, and it's a, a malevolent force in society. So I'm, I'm very uh, distrustful of the United States Federal Reserve Bank and, and central banks generally. Yeah, because, you know, the, the greatest tax of them all is – uh, one of my favorite economists, I just had a wonderful writing style, was Murray Rothbard. 
And um, and I think he did that little booklet, you know, what have they done to our money? What I forget the name of the book. But, yeah. you know, one of the things which people don't understand is that, uh, you know, there's nothing really to back up the, the dollar. It's just the full faith and credit of the United States. And I, I think kind of a, a watershed events, uh, Jeff, was when uh, Nixon took the country off the gold standard. I think it was in August of, of 1971. And that's ever since then, it's, it's kind of like the, the, the horse is out of the barn. Would you agree? Yeah, there's no question. Up until really the 30s, you had always, average people had always been able to re- redeem paper dollars, which were really certificates, you know, for a dollar's worth of gold. People had always been able to reserve or, or to, to exchange U.S. currency for actual gold. That, that's, what the, that's what a dollar meant up until the 30s. From the 30s until about the 1970s, until 1971, as you mentioned, well, only foreign governments could exchange U.S. dollars for gold. Uh, and then in 1971, under the Nixon administration, even that exchange was eliminated. So what that means is that there's nothing backing the dollar. That The, the Treasury, uh, working with the Federal Reserve Bank, can literally create more dollars at, at any time it wants. And so more money by itself doesn't create any additional goods and services in society. It doesn't make us any wealthier if there's just more money generally in society, what makes us wealthier is having more goods and services available more cheaply. And that requires a more productive society. That requires capital investment, all kinds of things that Austrians understand that I'm afraid a lot of our modern economists don't because they've convinced themselves that a healthy economy is based on consumption. Yeah, We all need to buy more stuff. And if we just buy more stuff, we'll be rich. And of course, the easiest way to get people to buy more stuff is to make money and credit cheap. But but wanting more stuff, and it doesn't mean more stuff is created. Uh, so the, the idea that the central theme that has run through our economics in this country and in the West since the 30s, under John Maynard Keynes, has been that consumption is the path to prosperity. Uh, from the Austrian perspective, productivity, capital accumulation is the path to prosperity. So it's two very fundamental fundamentally different ways of, of looking at the economy. And at the heart of all of it is monetary policy. Because that's where we see uh, the government, the Treasury Department, and the Federal Reserve work in concert to simply create more money without creating any new stuff. And that money, unfortunately, goes to some people before others. So it doesn't distribute itself evenly throughout the economy. It creates a class of, of wealthy people who are connected to government, government contractors, People are connected to banks, commercial banks, and Wall Street, but it doesn't really trickle down to the average person. So it's a very dangerous policy to allow government to simply create money without anything like gold backing it. Yeah, there's no honesty in the system. Um, in, you know, it's just um, there's a, uh, and I'll, I can pass you on some of my research, Jeff, is that, you know, uh, this is the whole thing. I, people, you know, most, you know, have read The Creature from Jekyll Island or, uh, I think Ron Paul. I recommend everyone read that that uh, book. But I guess who is it? Eustace Mullen was the first guy who wrote about the Fed. Uh, but um, uh, the the Fed really is owned by the who who owns the Federal Reserve, Jeff? Now I don't know the question, okay? But I I know who. Can you tell our listeners who actually owns the Federal Reserve? So they don't think I'm I'm the crazy one in this equation. All well, right. it's complicated. That's the problem. Uh, the, the Federal Reserve Bank represents a hybrid between state and private ownership, and that's why it's so complicated, or one reason. 
But that's also why we should be suspicious, because in every other area of life, or, or business, I should say, we worry when supposedly private companies or private industries get in bed with government. We worry about that when it's Amazon and NSA. We worry yeah. about that when it's Facebook. Uh, so why wouldn't we worry about that when it's our money? So what happened is Congress created the Federal Reserve System by statute in 1913. So there's not too many private industries that have to be created by legislation in Congress. So we can't view it uh, as, as a private bank in that sense. So they created the Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, at the same time, they created 12 member banks, which were set up all across the country. Those banks actually have nominally private owners. In other words, private commercial banks, the kind of banks you all know, like Credit Suisse, Bank of America, uh, own shares in those 12 member banks. So it, it looks on paper a lot like private ownership of those banks, but those shares are a little different than what you and I would think of if we go buy stock in an ordinary company. In other words, the commercial banks that own the Fed banks, uh, they can't sell or alienate or get rid of those shares. They have to keep them. And moreover, they're all entitled to a 6% annual dividend, regardless of the performance of the, of the 12 uh, that, so That's it's, still in the books, it's Jeff. Guaranteed dividend. So that's, so that's, so it's a, it's, it's privately owned in a sense, but it's publicly created. So I would view it as, as a hybrid rather than a private bank. And and they still give themselves, am I correct, Jeff, they still get that 6% guaranteed dividend in a, in a, in a period of 0% interest rates, or ZERP, as they say? Is that still on the books where they get 6%? Well, it's, it's a nice trick if you can if you can get in on it. I think a lot of people, especially over the last few years, would love to get six percent a year. Everyone's struggling to get two percent in a money market or or a savings account. So six uh, percent might not look great in the uh, crazy uh, go go years of the, well, you know when when at least on paper the stock market's returning twenty percent. But a lot of times six percent looks real good. So would it be accurate to say? And, I, and again, I think this might you know where I'm coming from, but would it be <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Would it be accurate to say, Jeff, that after the financial crisis, when Hank Paulson went hat in hand into Congress, said we need seven hundred uh, billion like yesterday because we're the FDIC is essentially in, insolvent when it was. Um, is it ha- is it safe to say um, that the the Fed uh, in in orchestration with the uh, Timmy Geithner at the, at the Treasury uh, at that time bailed out the uh, the banks and really not the American economy after the last financial crisis? Yeah, there was a, a huge bailout, not only of banks, but, but also private industry like AIG, the insurance giant. Yep. And there's sort of two pieces to that. One was the TARP, uh, the Troubled Assets Relief uh, Project, uh, which, which bailed out a lot of industry. Uh, but the banks themselves were, were really more bailed out by the Fed. What the Fed did starting in 2008, was it embarked on a process, which we now know as quantitative easing. And what that basically did was it allowed the Fed to buy up a bunch of bank assets. And commercial banks, including B of A, a lot of mortgage lenders, in 2008 were deeply insolvent. Investment banks, too. Uh, We saw that with Lehman Brothers, obviously. So because of this insolvency, they needed a bailout. And and so the Fed comes along and says, you know what, we'll buy up all those mortgages you own. (laughs) Uh, even though a lot of them were subprime and almost certain to default, if not in default. And we'll, we'll give you, uh, we'll buy up all kinds of things. We'll buy treasury debt so the Congress can continue to spend money beyond what it raises in taxes. But we'll not just buy treasury debt from these commercials.
commercial banks. We'll actually buy some of your loan portfolios, too. So through this process of quantitative easing, which has really taken about 10 years, and it's only now starting to be slowly unwound by Jerome Powell at the Fed, uh, banks, U.S. commercial banks, were in effect recapitalized. And you might say, well, Jeff, so what? That was a good thing. They were in trouble, and government or the Fed came along and helped them and, and stabilized things. Well, the, the problem is, is that you can't just create uh, something for nothing forever. Uh, these banks now have many trillions of dollars in reserves parked with the Fed that they didn't have before, and those reserves were basically created out of thin air. So now not all of those reserves have yet made it their way into the general economy. Uh, banks haven't lent them out. By definition, they can't lend out the reserves. But the point is that uh, commercial banks were recapitalized by creating money. And that ultimately means that you and I will suffer in the form of inflation down the road, whether that's quickly uh, or whether that's slowly. So far, it's been slowly. But we have seen a lot of uh, inflation in things like a- in, in certain asset prices, coastal real estate, stock markets, bank stocks, etc., uh, all went up rapidly over the last 10 years. So you can't have something for nothing. And, and if I'm wrong, why doesn't every country on earth with a central bank simply recapitalize its industries tomorrow? Uh, uh, why doesn't every country on earth with a central bank simply stop taxing people altogether and create government debt and have their own central bank buy it in a circular process? If that works, why doesn't it work for everyone across the board? Well, in, in part because, as you mentioned earlier, the dollar is backed by the full faith and credit of the biggest, baddest, most powerful government on earth with the biggest, baddest military, uh, the United States of America, but I don't think that can go on forever. I think at some point the rest of the world is going to, to understand that we'll never get our fiscal house in order. We'll never pay off our debt. And they're going to start demanding higher interest rates for our bonds. They're going to, you know, they're going to want junk bond rates to invest in this deadbeat spendthrift known as Uncle Sam. Uh, we, we haven't seen that yet, but we've seen a lot of cracks in the foundation. So it's something that, that keeps me up at night really uh, far more than the, uh, the the stuff we see, uh, you know, on Fox News all day about politics. Yeah, and you never see it addressed in some of the other cable shows either, uh, Jeff. And 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 the Fed it, it manipulates a lot of the uh, actual statistics. Because am I am I uh, correct, Jeff, that um, the Fed actually excludes um, uh, food and energy out of core inflation? And, and I mean, if you have a family, you're you're anyone, your big two of your biggest expenses are are, are, are you know oil, gas heat and food and but they exclude this stuff but um uh, but could you tell how um the fed causes inflation because we live here and uh I, I know you're down in alabama it's a beautiful area i like it but around here like in the and we're in the seacoast of new hampshire beautiful area come up here sometime it's beautiful but the you know prices of real estate and all these asset prices are just uh going into the stratosphere how does the federal reserve uh, cause all this massive inflation well, the Fed, especially when it comes to housing, the Fed is, is not the only reason prices go up. Of course, there's supply and demand, and, and land and housing, more than lots of things, is fixed. In a, you know, particular little, uh, uh, a pretty little town in New Hampshire is not is not gigantic. So there's some you want to live, you know, within a certain striking distance of that pretty little downtown. You might have to pay more simply because of supply and demand, and also because the U.S. population has grown quite a bit in the last 30 years. So that we, you know we can't. We, we need to understand that, that demand is, is what drives a lot of the price increases, not mm-hmm. only 
what the Fed does over time is it wildly expands the money supply. And, and when there's more money in society chasing the same amount of goods, then uh, prices have to rise. It's, it's just the nature of things. There's supply and demand for money, just like there's supply and demand for anything else. Moreover, there's supply and demand for credit. And most people don't under, understand how credit works in the sense of interest rates. You and I might think, well, look, if a bunch of people go and, and are, are thrifty and deposit money into the bank, the bank will have lots and lots of money to lend out so the supply <laughs> will be bigger, and therefore the price will drop and interest rates will be a little lower. But if people are, really aren't saving any money at all and banks don't har- have hardly any money, uh, they'll have to, their supply will be limited, and when people want to borrow money, they'll have to pay more. Well, that's not how it works uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, first and foremost is the, re- is the Fed sets interest rates indirectly. It targets interest rates through its Fed funds rate, which affects commercial rates that you and I pay. And so when you're setting interest rates, then the supply and demand of savings doesn't really have anything to do with how much with, with what you pay in interest. The second thing is that there's a system of fractional reserve lending, which banks engage in, which allows them to lend out uh, bank deposits uh, in, in many multiples, not just, not just, in other words, when you go deposit $10,000 in the bank, they don't keep it around. They don't, you don't get a receipt, a warehouse receipt like you do at the theater to claim your coat at the check place. You get, you get a, basically a bank account, which you can write checks against or use your ATM card against. But, but your money isn't there in the sense that they immediately turn around and lend it out, with the exception of some slight reserve requirements. So if everybody woke up tomorrow <laughs> who has a, a basic B of A uh, checking or savings or money market or account and said, you know, I'm losing faith in, in Bank of America. I think I'm going to go take all of my money out and switch it to this other bank. Well, you know, B of A probably could not handle that. B of A would be insolvent and unable to pay. So that's because of fractional reserve lending. It lends out money it doesn't have in multiples of what's actually deposited. So as a result of fractional reserve lending and as a result of the Fed setting interest rates, in my opinion, artificially low, below what they would be if we just relied on savings, um, you know, there's a lot of price appreciation. Uh, money, borrowing money is, is pretty cheap. And so that also drives up demand for houses in places like Fortune, New Hampshire. Uh, okay, Jeff. Uh- Question for you, and this is in the boom and bust cycles, and this is, I don't know, uh, I'm following this, and I remember there was a dot-com meltdown in 99, then uh, Alan Greenspan you know, dropped the interest rates down to nothing, and then, when, then, and then in 2007 we had the same thing. We had, uh, we had another a boom and bust uh, credit cycle, if you will. And I hate to say it, I don't know how what the folks down there in Auburn think, but um, I see all the 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 signs, Jeff. It's it's there's there's going to be another. It's boom and bust again, and and margin debt is at all time high. Uh, the 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 debt on, on the U.S. balance sheet is all time high. And if you look at listen to someone like David Stockman or whatever, he thinks it's going to be the next apocalypse. Um, uh, but this is all kind of driven out of the Austrian school of economics. Could you tell people how? This easy money approach is, creates boom and bust, which would uh, Luke von Mises and and um, and uh, Rothbard were so uh, against. Isn't it amazing? The world has more debt than it did in two thousand eight, yeah. both at the governmental level, at the business level, and at the individual household level: mortgages, credit cards, autos, etc. And yet we think we're better off. I mean, if you went out and got 
a new credit card with a $10,000 balance and immediately went out and bought a bunch of trinkets or, or electronics or whatever you might buy with that 10000 you know, your neighbor across the street might think, wow, he's doing well, that's prosperity. <laughs> but, of course, we know you just borrowed more money. So this, we're, the reason David Stockman uh, issues such a dire warning is because, because debt globally is, is larger than it was in 2008. Another recession could be worse than 2008. And here's the thing. We tend to, to focus on why bubbles burst, but we don't focus so much on, on how and why they're created in the first place. And so because economic cycles take a long time, sometimes yeah. many years, and because there's so many factors involved, so many industries, so many people, they're, they're very complex. It's very hard to, to directly trace a line between cause and effect here. But here, here's what we do know, is that when money and borrowing money is really cheap, people tend to do it. If you make borrowing cheap, they'll take you up on the offer. And sometimes when when money doesn't cost very much, an awful lot of business plans look good on paper. And they even, they even succeed on paper for a while when interest rates stay low. But when interest rates go up, uh, Warren Buffett talked about the tide going out and seeing who still has their beta <laughs> on. Uh, you know, that's when we find out whether a lot of things were actually economically viable. So when central banks try to stimulate the economy, by creating a bunch of new money and pushing interest rates down because they think, oh, my gosh, we're in a recession. We have to save the country. Uh, what, what that does is it encourages a lot of what economists call malinvestment. Yeah. So maybe because money is so cheap, lots and lots of people are out there spending and borrowing. And as a result of that, maybe Cadillac says, you know, people really love these Escalades. They cost 80 grand, but, wow, you know, Barry, they're selling like hotcakes. <laughs> so let's ramp up and let's build another escalate assembly line. Okay, well, that sounds great until there's a bust and people's money and spending and credit dries up, like we saw in 2008. Busts, by definition, are deflationary. And then all of a sudden, Cadillac is stuck with this white elephant of an assembly line, and it turns out that you can't just easily convert all those millions of dollars spent on the assembly line into something that builds, you know, small electric cars or something else. It, it's it's expensive. There's a lot of loss there. There's a lot of waste. And so that's what we call malinvestment, because low interest rates give people a signal that things are better than they are. And, and so we've come to just imagine that booms and busts are just an inherent part of capitalism. You know, their animal spirits just cause these things. We don't understand it. And, and this is just part of life. And it's always going to be this way. Well, no, that isn't true. Booms and busts are directly related monetary policy. The problem in explaining this and understanding it is that it's a lengthy, complicated process. But at its core, it's about, it's about monetary policy, and it's about what central banks do. So that central banks cause booms and busts. How and why is complicated, but, but I, I strongly believe that that is true. All right. Now, Jeff, I have a question for you, and I because I read your bio, and uh, we'll have to talk offline sometime. But you used to be, you're, you were a barrister, you were an attorney. You used to work in private equity, am I correct, at one point? Indeed, yes. During mergers and acquisitions, okay. And I, 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 I always like to um, bring up, talk about malinvestment. And um, uh, and the only reason I bring this up is Paulo, uh, what's, what's, what's Paulo's, Jerome Paulo right now. He used to be a, a banker, essentially a private equity guy, a Carlisle Group. And, you know, what we're seeing, Jeff, I don't know if you saw this, um, uh, but we we follow these retail bankruptcies, and there's dozens of them. 
the companies like you know Payless Shoes is filing bankruptcy a second time. Uh, things Remember just went bankrupt. Uh, Toys R Us went bankrupt. Jimbery went bankrupt. Um, there's bankruptcies all over the the uh, uh, the landscape uh, because of this cheap credit. I mean, um, it, wouldn't you think that this this really cheap uh, credit policy has and the use of debt has really contributed to, to malinvestment, if you will? Yeah, there's no question. And while I would strongly disagree with a lot of Powell's views, I think he's a smart guy. I think he understands all of this. He, he, he's certainly not an Austrian by any stretch, but he would, he would at least conceptually understand the idea of malinvestment. And, of course, when you, know, you mentioned Payless, we also see that even, the, even the, the discount or budget sector is not immune. We think, well, if there's a big recession, you know, Dollar General or something like that will flourish. Well, that's not always true. This, you know, malinvestment can happen across, across the board. And what we've seen, especially in the last seven years, is just an unbelievable amount of M&A activity. Uh, but buying and selling companies doesn't necessarily make them any more productive. It doesn't necessarily mean that they start paying dividends to shareholders. It doesn't mean that they have less debt. Oftentimes it means they have more debt after a merger or a buyout. Um, so really it's, it's all a symptom of cheap money. And by that, I mean private equity investors can go out and buy companies in whole or in part with just a little bit of equity on their parts, what we might call skin in the game, their own investor money, and lots and lots of debt because banks are lending, uh, credit is cheap. And, by lo- and lots and lots of debt means that interest, all that interest paid is tax deductible. You know, paying down debt in a corporate setting means you know, the company takes a tax deduction. Paying, dividends are not tax deductible to the paying corporation. So there's an incentive built in to have debt rather than paying dividends to equity. So it encourages loading companies up with debt. And it also encourages a buying frenzy because it's easier and cheaper to buy. So as a result of that, you get into some crazy situations where uh, in, in a merger situation or a buyout situation, investors are paying six, eight, 10, 15 times EBITDA or times earnings, which doesn't really make any sense oftentimes if you think about it. We see the same thing in the stock market. A, a, a stock like Amazon, which has never been a particularly profitable company, no. uh, trades at, at what I would consider crazy PE multiples. Uh, so the, the merger mania is not something inherent in the market. Credit should always be tight. It should always be difficult to borrow in a sense that it, you, know, you should always need some collateral. You should always need some success and business savvy and a proven track record. A- any kind of sane society, credit should be tight. But instead, we have the opposite. We have loose credit, and that, that goes out in waves across the entire economy. And, and M&A craziness is just part of that. It's a symptom. Yeah, because the banks love this business. I mean, if they're doing an M&A, you know, or the dividends, and I talk about malinvestment, um, I would see what uh, Dr. Paul would say about this, but uh, I'll give you kind of example, like Payless, I don't know, which is leveraged by, I forget, around how many million dollars, $1.2 billion bucks or something like that. You know, they essentially did a dividend recap um, um, in Jeff, and, and, and that's one of the reasons it went into bankruptcy. And, um because uh, of all this bloody debt. And then another example, I was talking to a client of mine down in the Florida Keys. I wish I was down there this morning uh, myself, but he down, lives down there. And we were talking about, because <clears throat> he works in the uh, 
<clears throat> in the uh, pet supply business about PetSmart, how they bought the company, uh, BC Partners bought it, and, and like 16 months later, they uh, did a dividend recap for $800 million and to extract a debt-funded dividend. So how, what would what would Ludwig von Mises or, or uh, Murray Rothbard say about this this craziness? Because the taxpayer subsidizing the whole bloody thing with the interest deduction, and then if they go into to bankruptcy, lots of times like they have some of these pension funds, like um, for for instance Avaya, which is a big commercial uh, old Bell's legacy uh, commercial phone system out of which went into bankruptcy. Uh, it was owned by Silver Lake and um, uh, TBG. They dumped the pensions onto the government. I mean, are, are anyone in the Mises addressing this issue? Well, the ultimate dumping of pensions onto the government was the creation of Social Security, which means you no longer have to take care of grandma anymore. Uh, so that's, <laughs> let's not forget that. That's but true. It, it, it's so true. Uh, what we're seeing is the financialization of the economy. Yeah. We see all this money and debt and credit moving around without creating any real value for anyone in the form of, of shareholders or dividends or increased productivity because an economy that is really prosperous and that is really healthy and growing uh, is creating goods and services more and more efficiently and cheaply over time. That's why a DVD player in 1990 cost $1,200, and now you can get one at Walmart for 40 bucks if you even want a DVD player at this point. <laughs> uh, that is called deflation. Deflation is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. Uh, don't believe the hype. Uh, we should expect deflation in the form of falling prices in, in a healthy society. What we have is the opposite. We have a, a, the financialization of the society, which has this ratchet effect where everything goes up and up and up, at least in nominal terms, not in real terms. Credit expands, money expands, debt expands, and it all leads to uh, what Mises called the crack-up boom, which is a deflationary spiral when it all comes to an end and the cracks start to show. So, you know, what we're doing is we're making things harder on ourselves than they have to be. We're creating a scenario where we could be in for a rougher, rockier time than we were in 2008, which was pretty spooky. I- I'm sure a lot of your listeners will think back and, and their own jobs or their own, their own situations became very shaky during that period. Imagine something worse. Uh, with all the hostility we have in this country now, with the Trump versus anti-Trump, yep. um, left versus right, you know, the, this is with a, at least on paper, a relatively healthy economy. God help us if we have another crash. Yeah. Uh, now, Will, my, Will, did you have um, did you have a question for Jeff? Yeah. Hang on one second. My sidekick, Will Pierce. Yeah. Sure, Jeff. Uh, I was wondering how people react to inflation. Uh, like, I, I used to buy a candy bar for five cents, then. Then the uh, the candy bars shrunk, and now they're a buck or a buck fifty, and I, I don't feel so hungry. I mean, <laughs> and I, I think I'm slowing down the economy by uh, my resistance to pay uh, the, these higher um, prices. And is is that a phenomenon that uh, you know economists uh, measure, and uh, how does it affect the economy as a whole? Well, it's so much more prevalent than the financial media will let on. Barry mentioned earlier the infirmities of CPI, which is really a pretty useless index. And there's so many, there's so many ways we see this throughout the economy. We're talking about at the retail level where the, the less affluent you are, the poorer you are, the lower your income, the, the higher percentage of your money you're spending on day-to-day stuff, whereas a very wealthy person 
you know, groceries or is a, is a very negligible part of their spending uh, as a percentage. So I just noticed the other day uh, we let my kids get, a, get Lucky Charms. We usually try to get them the healthy cereal. Okay, we gave <laughs> in. We let them get Lucky Charms one time. And I looked at the box, and the box was from the front was the same height and the same width. Uh, but from the side, the depth of it was much smaller than the cereal boxes of my childhood. And and part of that is because cereal's gone up, grain has gone up, and now I think a box of cereal is 5 $6 maybe now. Uh, but they want to make it sort of look the same on the shelf. That's a form of inflation. You reduce, the, you know, you're paying the same amount or even more for less cereal. Uh, so that that's just sort of an anecdotal example. But this is... This is all throughout our economy. It's so interesting to me that when gas prices rise or milk prices rise or cereal prices rise, you know, we notice it and people start to complain. But yet when, uh, when housing goes up, we think that's great. Oh, my gosh, my house is worth 10% more every year. Or when your stock market portfolio goes up because you own the FANG stocks, which up until maybe December anyway, <laughs> my high, uh, you say, oh, my gosh, isn't this great? Well, I mean, housing going up 10% every year is great if you have a house in a trendy area. It's not so great if you're a young person who's already saddled with with student loan debt who wants to buy a house. So we, we always assume that it's, it's, we have this weird dichotomy in our society where, where certain prices going up is good and certain prices going up is bad. And I think we ought to pay a lot more attention to inflation. I think we ought to understand it as a monetary phenomenon. And, you know, I'll throw out my Twitter is at Jeff Dice, Jeff, D-E-I-S-T. Hit me up on Twitter, and I will send you a copy of a little book, about 90 pages, called What Has Government Done to Our Money by Murray Rothbard. Best. And I'm telling you, you can read it in an hour on a flight or whatever, and you will know more about this than 99% of people walking around. And that's a shame, but we got to start somewhere, and, and I think we, we really need to understand that inflation is something that can make that is making all of us a lot worse off, worse off especially when we get old and retire. I understand this. Uh, then what do I do? Uh, like, like what's our what's a call to actions, for example? Well, the call to action is to first and foremost, to the extent you can, try to diversify yourself uh, into uh, assets that maybe aren't as prone to inflation. I think a certain amount of precious uh, metals is good for anybody uh, as a hedge. Uh, I think if you if you have the means, if you're wealthy enough. I think you should even diversify yourself politically by holding some other currencies, uh, by maybe having a home somewhere else, by a second passport. That, that's not really feasible for the average guy or gal. But what you can do is understand that inflation is real and that you'll never have an asset more important or more valuable than your own ability to go out and work and produce value for someone. So keeping yourself mentally and physically healthy and able to work is job number one. And so that your own income uh, keeps up with, or at least tries to keep up with inflation, so you're improving yourself. Uh, that, that's not a happy answer. It's not necessarily the answer everyone wants to hear, but I think that is the short answer. Yeah, it sounds like a very Dyke answer. Yeah, you know, so yep. Yeah, another question, Jeff, is this is you, know, um, you we hear so much about income inequality. Actually, there's a guy, an economist out of University of California, Berkeley, today said a guy by the name of Zuckman said that. Wealth inequality is like the top one tenth of one percent owns twenty five percent of the entire wealth in the country, which is more than the, in the nineteen twenties. We all know it happened in twenty nine. Um, 
it's it's this whole like we, we've kind of the Fed kind of part of a whole elitist uh, economic system. You know, really it rewards uh, bad behavior and then it hurts good people. I, I'm just I'm just trying to uh, educate people and and how so how can people find out more about Mises? Well, look, the central banks are a huge driver of inequality. There's no question about it. There's no question that they create somewhat of an undeserving class of rich, people who are wealthier than they ought to be relative to the value they've created for society. I think that's absolutely true. That said, I don't worry about inequality per se. I think we should worry about the total wealth in society. If we, if we could snap our fingers tomorrow and say, you know, the, the lowest 10% of America, the truly uh, uh, poor people, especially homeless people, people with drug and alcohol or mental problems, the, the least amongst us materially, anyway, not morally, but the least amongst us will be objectively 10% better off. But the really super rich will be 11% better off. Of course, I would say, yes, let, let's make that happen. Uh, I think a lot of people on the progressive end and on the left would say, no, that inequality per se is the problem, not, not your objective standard of living. So I think that's silly, and I think that's harmful. But, I mean, at the end of the day, but most of us who are at least, you know, lower middle class live far better than 99% of humans who ever walked the earth, kings and queens included. Amen. And frankly, if, you're, if, if you make $40,000 a year, let's say, in America today, and you wake up in the morning, your life is far more like that of a billionaire's life than unlike. Uh, you, you both wake up in some sort of reasonable habitation. The billionaire's got a fancier house. You turn on your mobile device, which is probably very similar to Bill Gates's. You go to your fridge, there's some food in there. Bill Gates has a fancier kitchen, fancier food. You drive to work and stare at a screen. Well, Bill Gates drives a fancy car to a fancier workplace and stares at a screen. So the idea that inequality is growing is, is based on nominal figures. It's based on dollars. And that's not really what life is. A hundred years ago, inequality was much worse. Five hundred years ago, inequality was much worse. So don't believe the hype. Uh, but what we ought to focus on is, is making society wealthier, not raising the minimum wage. How about we just make it so that even people at the lower end are getting much higher wages, real wages? That's, so that's got to be our focus. And that's, you know, we, we talk a lot about this at the Beast Institute. We, we try to educate people. We try to be an alternative to college, a free alternative to college, because college is not going to teach you real economics. And that's why our website, Mises.org, is, is one of the most highly trafficked econ websites in the world. It's got a lifetime's worth of reading. So if you follow us at Mises on Twitter or come to our, our website, MISES.org, or find us on Facebook, uh, if you're interested in this stuff, I guarantee you, you will not run out of reading material. Jeff, thank you so much. It's been wonderful. We'll come to the end of our show, but thank you so much. We'll, uh, we'll be in touch uh, again. I'd like to connect with Dr. Uh, Paul, by the way, on this as well, because I, I love him. He's just a wonderful guy. Uh, but thank you so much, Jeff, and we'll be in touch with you. I'll send you a couple of my books, and uh, God bless you, and best best wishes with the Mises Institute, my, my well, friend. thank you, gentlemen, for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been The Economic Warrior with your host, Barry James Dyke. Broadcast live at WSCA Portsmouth Community Radio. Engineered by Phil Kleiger. If you have any questions about today's show or need an ally in conquering the battleground of finance, contact the warrior himself at barryjamesdyke.com. Who are the warriors?